Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia. We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs. Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job. Yeah, it worked for us. To find motivated young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolau. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan. I'm here, as always, with David Scott. Fantastic to be back, Paul. Our guest on the show this week, back on the show, um, first time uh, he came on the show, it was a pretty extraordinary day. Um, we'll get to that in a second, but our <laughs> guest is uh, Chris Weston, uh, Head of Research at IG Markets uh, here in Australia. How are you, Chris? I'm very well. Good day, gents. So, Westy, uh, it was just over a year ago um, we were on this podcast, and I think... That was the episode that took the podcast from sort of a thing that uh, was kind of interesting and all that kind of stuff to, you know, to just a few markets people. And it was, but then Brexit happened, basically. Mm. Um, we had caught up with each other the day before. We'd all talked about what we thought was going to happen. Uh, and David had outlined this idea that, well, if they did go for leave, that the pound would devalue by 10%. Um, and uh, all hell broke loose. Um, it was uh, quite an amazing day, wasn't it? Yeah, I think we were all thoroughly knackered by the time we got speaking to each other. Um, you know, and I think it was just incredible to watch. And, you know, I think it will go down in, as a case study in, in financial markets and how people position themselves and, and react to volatility and, of course, you know, manage the risks in their portfolio around, um, you know, what is eventually a, a major event risk. So one of the things about that was that it, for me, um, I think looking at it, that was the beginning of a new era, uh, I think, for global markets where suddenly the supremacy and power of voters to change the investment landscape, the, um, to sort of, you know, the assertion of this, um, uh, their control over what they, what they want to do in, the, in their own economies, mm. um, which we've seen washing through uh, all of these various um, elections and, um, you know, obviously it was followed by the rise of um, Le Pen in France um, and we had uh, Donald, Trump. Donald Trump, of course, um, which was, um, you know, we got to that point uh, through November, um, the market fell when it looked like Hillary was going to lose, but then the lights came on and investors thought, hang on a second, this guy is going to drop fiscal napalm on the economy. Um, it's good for stocks. Bye, bye, bye. Mm. Well, I think the irony of the situation is that you've got U.S. markets, which are you know not a million miles away from all-time highs again. Uh, and I think a large amount is down to the fact that he hasn't done anything. <laughs> you know, the fact that you know you've got very, very sub subdued, vo implied volatility and realised volatility. You've got very predictable central bank policy, um, and the economy is doing pretty well. You know, I think we're going to we've got a the, the quarter at the moment in the US is running around about 3%. Global economics are working. You've got synchronised global growth for the first time since 2010 in EM and DM. Um, and I think if you had that fiscal response now, had he done anything that he said he was going to do, then you probably would have an economy which was heating up a little bit more and the Fed would have to 
probably be raising rates more aggressively. And I think, you know, financial conditions would probably be tighter than where they are. And you'd have equity markets lower. So mm. the fact it hasn't actually done anything at all, um, although we are a little bit inclined to say that there's a chance he may get tax reform in some sort of small capacity, is why the markets are, or at least in the US, are where they are at the moment. So, you know, he can probably take credit for the markets being at you know, record highs by the fact he hasn't done anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there's, this, there's also this new um, political risk now looming, which Trump has really escalated this week um, by threatening to effectively shut down the government. Shut down uh, his own government. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, um, we're staring at a scenario where Congress might not be able to raise the debt ceiling. Um, so the federal government will basically not be able to pay its bills. And like something straight out of the West Wing, they will need to shut down whole services of government. Um, uh, it you know um, it is it, and this has become really real. Trump appears to be in open warfare <laughs> with uh, Mitch McConnell, yeah. um, the, the Senate Majority Leader, right? Mm. Um, so there was this famous expletive-laden uh, phone call over um, healthcare reform a couple of weeks back, but the relationship just appears to be continually deteriorating between. Um, the White House and the guys down the road at uh, Congress. Well, they they put out a statement last night suggesting that they were, it was all it was all hugs and kisses, and that they were actually getting on quite well. The New York Times is reporting quite the contrary at the moment. Um, but I mean, if, if you've got a lot of cynics who will be listening to to this podcast, who will be saying that Donald Trump isn't fit for office, and I'm not going to um, be the one who critiques that situation. But you know, effectively, if you put things in perspective, you've got Trump who runs the presidency, you've got um, a Republican House. Um, and Senate, and yet they're going to shut down the government. <laughs> it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever in the world. But, you know, he is so hell-bent on getting, um, you know, a spending bill which includes um, funding for the wall. Um, is he going to play hardball and shut down his own government? It makes absolutely no sense that he does so. I mean, but, you know, that's where we are. And I think, you know, what we're going to see now is if he is to be believed on this situation, we are going to come into... High levels of brinkmanship coming into yeah. September. I think there's a good chance that you're going to see out long term, longer end of the curve uh, flatten out as you you know see outperformance there. People look to buy duration or increase duration, and you're going to see a flatter curve. And you know you probably like to see implied volatility in financial markets kick up a little bit. Um, and it's going to be a painful process for us. Unfortunately, we're going to be in a situation where we go, "Why are you doing this? this? This debt ceiling, just raise it." But then yeah. you know it becomes all. Yeah, you know, very like a highly charged political process, and markets may get into a situation where they get into a bit of a tiz, and we'll probably get a positive resolution in the end. But um, you know, I think we are in the eye of the storm, and you know, there's a good chance that we're going to see a lot of well potential pain through these markets. Even though Mitch McConnell has come out like last week and said that there's absolutely no chance they're not going to raise. I think the more important question is, A, do we think it's going to happen? And B, how long if there is a government shutdown is it going to be for? And you know, anyone who's been in financial markets for a, a period of time has seen this before, back in 2013 when we saw it. Um, just the economic damage that's done, the political damage as well that uh, that results in this, just makes me like maybe maybe it's wrong to go and just be complacent like that in relation to what we just discussed at the start of the program. But to me, I just cannot see this. I can see it being maybe a blip on the radar, but uh, anything more sinister than that, I just can't see it being something where it's a prolonged shutdown that really goes and causes some havoc in markets. But the slippery thing, though, is is like with most political situations, well. In the scenario with an election, you've got a binary outcome, right? So there's, there's, it happens, there is a result, and markets adjust. Mm -hmm. However, um, with this, there is a very broad spectrum of potential uh, realities that we'll be facing come 
uh, September and then October and then November. Um, and then, of course, we're kicking off into the season for, for the midterm uh, elections the following year. So it is going to be um, – uh, so how, how do you like think about this from a, a market strategy point of view? Like, how do you think? What do you think is the the, the approach and the ideal approach to sort of uh, managing for this and positioning for it? Well, I, I watch price action and let you tell you the market what the market, when the market starts getting a bit more concerned about it. So we know that the C, if it's not resolved by twenty ninth of September, then markets as we get into that period is going to be very very worried. And the CBO. Um, the Congressional Budget Office in America has said that I think I think it was the 10th of October or the 14th of October, okay. they will exhaust all extraordinary funds and and they will basically there go for not be able to pay workers. But let's not forget, you know, we've got our own political issues as well that that, that are, are surfacing, um, and, and we need to think about that. But then, you know, and you, as you go in around the world, in you've got an Italian election somewhere down the line, and the last couple of days there's been a bit of concern expressed in the BTP market. Um, about an, an alternative co- parallel currency, which of course Berlusconi is kicking off, and then <laughs> and in October you've got um, Theresa May potentially, you know, if she's still there, um, stepping up at the Tory Party conference. And lot, this time last year, that was a, a big catalyst when she came out and said that she was going to have a very firm stance on Brexit. And then we saw the pound collapsing on the back of that as well. So, you know, I think the bottom line is is that market participants have, by and large, been very bad at trading politic, political outcomes. Yeah. Uh, we can't manage the risks around these things. We get the – well, certainly I'll put my hand up and say I've been very bad at calling these outcomes. Um, but we get the outcomes wrong and, you know, I think people uh, – you know, do, does it affect monetary policy? And, and you've got to think of those contingencies as well. But, uh, you know, I think politics now over the next three or four months – you know, if you're a macro guy, if you're thinking broad, you know, if, you, if, you, if you've got income in the Australian equity market, perhaps it's not going to be such a big thing. But if, you, if you're a currency trader, if you're a rates trader, a fixed income trader, uh, or if you, if you trade in, in um, yeah, indices or commodities, I think there's um, a good chance you've got to get your politics right because that could, inf- could affect monetary policy further down the line. Now, speaking of commodities, we're going to jump onto that in a second. Uh, and just to go through a few other things that we're going to try and cover on the show, um, we're going to talk about commodities, as I said, um, some of the metals. We'll talk about China, obviously very important in that picture. Um, you know, uh, and pr- pretty good uh, situation for a lot of Australian companies and for the Australian economy. Uh, we might have a quick look at some of the um, the results that um, that we've seen during reporting season. Talk about where the ASX is. Uh, we are definitely going to talk about the Wallabies, um, uh, which uh, I think uh, will be uh, an interesting part of the show. We might also talk about uh, the fight of the century. Um, uh, Mayweather McGregor spectacle of the century. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, um, I think isn't it sixty bucks or whatever for you know what could be a very short amount of um, entertainment. Anyway, uh, and that's coming from an Irishman. Um, so um, let's look at uh, um, uh, speaking of uh, of hard stuff. Let's um, talk about the metals, Scotty. Uh, another uh, big week for iron ore, huh? Yeah, where do we start? It's, uh, it's hard to go and explain the price action other than it's just chaotic at times. Uh, we had a huge rally over the last two months in iron ore, taking it up to a, a new five-month high. Then all of a sudden, uh, there was a warning that came out from uh, from CISA, the, uh, the, the Steel and Iron Association in, uh, in China, about uh, there wasn't going to be any uh, any problems in relation to uh, supply, in relation to the uh the curbs that they were going to put on for environmental grounds during the, uh, the Chinese winter. Um, that was taken as a cue by traders to go and, and smoke uh, iron ore and rebar futures like uh, they're uh, out of favour. And then all of a sudden today, back again, and they're uh, dip buying, and it's up again by about 2% when I last looked. 
So might we might we hit eighty US dollars uh, for a ton? Oh, quite potentially. Like you know, the speculative uh, you know forces are certainly long, and there are they think there's going to be further gains. And you look at the uh, the fundamentals that are underpinning it. China's producing a record amount of steel at the moment, and they've got very very short supply. Now those two factors alone tells you that you know things are tight, and then if there is going to be curbs down the line, there's every chance that you know you might see eighty bucks a ton again. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I look more at the futures market than the actual spot price. I know that's what the government will look at the spot price, but we can actually trade the futures price. Um, And, you know, there's been a lot of fundamental drivers there. You know, you talk about um, closing the closure of, well, complete closure of the um, certain furnaces uh, in July. And I think that really sparked it up. But there's been, yeah, if you look at the, the, the profit margins of the steel mills at the moment, yeah, there are huge levels, and it's just incentivizing them to, to use more of the, the raw commodity that produces steel. Um, obviously, there's a lot of speculative money playing through there as well. And I think if you look at Brazil, their export numbers have been pretty poor, or they've certainly been fairly benign. That's been a, a positive um, in terms of the supply side. BHP recently lowered their production numbers, as did Vale. You know, and I think all of these things, when you aggregate it into the move, and then you get the fact that the Chinese retail trader who loves trading iron ore futures, <laughs> they love they love momentum and trend. I've got, I've got no I've got no problem with that at all. I mean, I think one of the great things if you are trading is follow the flow, follow the money flow, follow the trend, and you know if you think probability, that's a great place to start. Um, and every pullback, as David rightly points out, is is being being supported, even though. Um, the uh, you know the regulators have been putting up margins on futures products and limiting the capacity and the exposure one individual can get when they're trading those futures. It, it hasn't stopped, and you know when you put these measures in, the 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 psyche of the retail trader in in China is that you know if the authorities are telling you not to do something, you you listen to them and you do the opposite, and that's why we are expecting a bit of a collapse in the price. That hasn't happened. Mm. And it as you as you say, it keeps coming in. That that's gotta be seen as a, a as a bullish sign. It's a bit counterintuitive too. Like I, I love this you know, the warnings on no steel prices aren't gonna go high. Well, why then are you going rolling out these massive infrastructure projects that are like underpinning the demand for steel at the moment? That's that's exactly what's doing. But no, no, steel prices are definitely not gonna go keep going higher. Like, I don't blame other punters, the other taxi drivers as so many people go and refer to for uh, for stepping in and going, Well, I want a piece of that action. Yeah. It's really uh, the commodities trade, um, so we've got the Dalian commodities exchange uh, in China. I looked at this a few months ago and of course, everybody knows about – well, people who follow markets a bit will know about um, De- uh, Delian Commodity Futures. Uh, but um, the Delian Commodity Exchange is absolutely vast, and they keep adding products to it. Dalian Egg. Dalian Egg. <laughs> Smashing them. Yeah. Oh. I, you sometimes tweet about Dalian Eggs being up a couple of percent. But no, I just, I just think it's hilarious because um, there was a time if you uh, – I mean this with all, all due respect to the Chinese trader, but you know, there is this – when you go through these bouts of sort of FOMO and this fear of missing out and yeah, everything's going up, you want to be involved in commodities and you know, iron ore's going up because steel's going up. That makes a lot of sense. But then you have a look at things like cotton that's going up. You're like, why was that going up? And then you see egg futures are going up just because it hasn't necessarily taken part in the recent rally. So everyone starts buying egg futures. And <laughs> well, then if, it's not go- if it hasn't gone up, then surely it's going to go follow the trend. And, and we, we laugh about it, but we've seen a lot of that as well when it comes to the base metals recently as well. And not just like in China, but uh, I know London, uh, New York, uh, all those places you've seen that there's been this synchronized uplift of, yeah. uh, of all metals. It just seems to be sparked. And I wonder how much it was actually to do with the Chinese punters who are, um, who mm. are driving this and encouraging people to go in, uh, the, in other jurisdictions the, to buy in. The other thing, there was like, how can you have a, an egg supply problem? 
Like, yeah. <laughs> it's surely that's not possible. It could be bird flu. Yeah. Well, we're always true. thinking about the, um, you know, how many avocados you can buy for a punnet of eggs and, you know, the egg futures and <laughs> the different ratio analysis. But I think things like, you know, zinc's been doing really well because yeah. people look at how that feeds into the sort of the, the, the steel market or the, the, the various factors for using in, in automobiles. And, you know, what, global car production or global car sales is going about 3%. China's is about 2.5%, which is good numbers. You know, and people look at that and, and zinc's been really bid up recently. You know, I, industrial metals are really where the money's at at the moment. That's been absolutely flying when you compare it to Brent um, oil prices. Um, you know, the, the industrial metal index is just is on a tear at the moment. And, you know, I think if you look at oil prices, which, you know, there's some fundamentals which suggest that we could probably see it push into $50, but there's been a lot. Every time you see it push into 50 bucks, you know, you basically look at the curve and you can see yeah. Um, all these producers starting Start, to hedge, and yeah. there's been a rampant flattening of the curve, of the crude c- curve. And so it suggests to me that you're not going to see much of a, an upside. But there's definitely some really positive fundamentals. Last week we saw the Baker Hughes rig count down five. Um, the inventory cycle is looking progressively better. I know there's a, a sort of price war between Russia and OPEC at the moment. So the market seems in a nice spot in the oil market. But you've had a. If you look on a PCP basis, we've seen you know these commodity prices moving up, and I still think there's an argument that's being had on the macro level about you know will this these moves in commodities um, and food and agricultural commodities lead to inflationary forces further down the line, and are central banks behind the curve? Most people don't think that's the case, and we're actually going to see, if anything, disinflation. Yeah. Um, but is there a possibility, you know, with where these markets are and with tight labour markets? You know, that these central banks could actually be correct with their sort of glass half full and a modest belief that perhaps the Phillips curve actually does work. Well, let's let's see what the US dollar does first and foremost, because obviously all these metals we're talking about are pricing US dollar terms, and the US dollar's been smoked this year, down 10%, uh, which always goes and naturally helps commodity prices that are priced in US dollar terms. Uh, that if the US dollar remains weak, and we still see the uh, the global economy performing like it is at the moment. We, did, we just saw uh, industrial uh, production worldwide had its best quarter in years uh, in the June quarter. So if that continues and the US dollar stays weak, look, there's every possibility that that might start filtering through to you know up the uh, down the other uh, the chain supply um, and actually you know, end up producing a little bit of inflation. But I still think it's you know, it's still probably a long way off yet. Yeah, um, absolutely. Look, the other thing that's going on with uh, China uh, is this whole talk about the capital controls, right? Uh, Now, uh, there was a story in the South China Morning Post this week, which for me was the clearest signal yet that um, the Chinese authorities are really onto this uh, and they're dead serious about trying to stop Chinese wealthy Chinese people from particularly buying uh, property from overseas. Uh, our colleagues over in London um, a few weeks ago at Business Insider reported on a um, a, a startup uh, incubator um, which had been promised um, several hundred million pounds in funding uh, from China, and it never arrived. Right, so everything stopped. Um, and the theory being that um, basically it's part of this it was a victim of this um, this clampdown now by Beijing on um, on capital leaving the country. Now, obviously, this is important for us uh, here in Australia because there are billions and billions of dollars worth um, of foreign um, uh, in investment uh, in the Australian property market. Now, 
this week uh, we reported that um, the you know there's another company um, looks a construction company in Queensland looks like it's going to the wall, um, but it's part of a broader story. So we looked into it. And Thirty construction companies um, have collapsed this year. Um, there is a liquidator now. Let's start with the uh, let's put the asterisks on this <laughs> qualified knowing that it's a, as somebody who's interested in companies being in in a lot of trouble but they say that there's 444 businesses in Queensland um, that are at a high to severe risk of failure in the next 12 months um, and then you know uh, it was Simon Thompson reported this and you look down through the list right there um, was the Cullen group um, collapsed over Christmas owing 20 million um, there was um, another company, 2.1 million. Um, there was Bluestone Construction, uh, 6.8 million. Um, Bloomer Constructions, um, you know, uh, a subsidiary of an ASX listed company on Terra, which was um, suspended from the ASX this week. Um, that company, Bloomer Construction, um, went into voluntary administration in April, owing $14 million to around 600 creditors. You know, um, to lose one looks like a uh, mistake, two looks like carelessness, but we've got a long list of, the, list of them now. And um, are you concerned, maybe, Chris, that this is a bit of a problem? You've just just might be very scared indeed. <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I think there's, a, there's an interesting aspect because if you... If you listen to some of the commentary, aside from what you've been talking about there, from like various PBS, PBOC members, um, we saw an advisor the other day talking about his projection for, for dollars CMY getting down to six and a half, suggesting that the, the Chinese, remember, is going to continue strengthening. Because where is it now? Uh, a little bit higher than that at the moment. Right. Um, but you know, that, that would suggest a further strengthening of the, of the remember. Um, You've seen members of the State Administration of Foreign Exchange talking about uh, actually allowing um, domestic players to invest more overseas assets and securities, which suggests that um, you know they are actually becoming a little bit more um, confident about the outflows. So whilst you're talking about the construction side of things, we are seeing some some, some confidence about the levels of outflows. And I think the Remimbi, if it continues strengthening, will give incentives for corporates to bring money back to China. Because um, they want to be in assets where the, the underlying currency is strengthening. We're going to get the um, the next FX um, reserve numbers that come out on the 9th. Um, and, you know, that will give us another indication about levels of outflows. But I think we are starting to see outflows mitigating and, 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 and halted. So I think, you know, we can't be too too concerned. The, the confidence, I think, is, is coming back in, in, in that regard. But just on that point, I mean, if you look at the, the Chinese investor in Australian property – and you put it into renminbi terms, if they market mark to market back into, you know, if they were to, to currency hedge that now. This is a, a very important point, yeah. They'd be making an absolute killing. I mean, you've made the, the capital return plus the, you know, the changes in the, in, in the currency should we get it back in there. And so they've got the double, double, double kicker. So when you're a Chinese investor, you're always thinking to yourself, what's the asset going to do? What's potentially the currency going to do? Now, they would, you know, if they were to realize a profit and bring the money back home, um, they'd be doing very nicely, but that's not why they invested in the first place. They invested in Australia to get their money out of the country, and they want to continue to hold it in Australia. There's first and a... foremost, that's the main reason why we're seeing that. Yeah, absolutely. What do you make of this, Dave, uh, the capital um, uh, picture? 
Oh, look, I completely agree with Westy. A lot of it comes down to currency movements. So I was just uh, reading some research from, uh, from McCoy, no, UBS, sorry, uh, that uh, was looking at uh, where a survey of Chinese uh, citizens were looking to go and invest overseas. And uh, one of the destinations that they were starting to go and see a pickup in interest again was in the UK. And that was following, obviously, the uh, depreciation of the pound. So they're obviously, it's not just, uh, no, it's a safety aspect of getting their money outside of China, but it's also a play on the currency. No, expecting maybe the pound uh, longer turn to go and throw some appreciation uh, again. So once again, that's that's one of the things. But in relation to um to Queensland, it's not as if we haven't been warned and haven't been warning about this problem. We've been discussing overbuilding in Brisbane in particular and, and other some parts of the of, you know to a lesser degree Melbourne. Uh, and there is some concerns about parts of Sydney as well. Whether it's actually you know, found or not is uh, is questionable. But Brisbane's been the the epicenter of those concerns the rba has been out warning about everything else and it's a cyclical industry so if you've got a combination of people have been building and building and building there's not enough demand for what they're building i it's one of those understandable things you see in a cyclical industry that you'll see businesses start to fail um look how much of that's going to be due due to uh no capital restrictions from china Look, you, yeah. you've got to wonder how much it is to do with that and not just the fact that it was a, a poor investment decision in the first place. Yeah, well, it, it, absolutely. I think this, you know, I think one of the issues is there is uh, just this confluence of uh, things that are headwinds um, for particularly for Brisbane, um, for that market uh, that we see. So, you know, it's not necessarily that big a city. Um, you know, the employment growth and economic growth, all the jobs are still down in the major cities, Sydney and Melbourne, um, where there's um, very, very strong economic growth, a lot of jobs still being created, uh, unemployment still falling. Um, picture is not as uh, healthy, so there's not as much demand that you're going to see. You know, you don't have um, people flocking um, in their tens of thousands to, um, uh, to Brisbane uh, to move in. So that's a bit of a, um, uh, obviously a bit of a, a drag um, on that, on the outlook there. Um, but I do think that, um, Across the spectrum of properties, from the very, very high end down to off-the-plan uh, apartments, that um, foreign buyers have been um, have been active in the market, and just reducing some of that activity uh, is naturally, um, I think, going to have. Well, I just sold effect. my I sold my two-bedroom off-the-plan apartment uh, for my sins. Congratulations! <laughs> and there wasn't too many foreign buyers, unfortunately, coming to that. <laughs> <laughs> But we made money. I think I'm one of the few people who who actually made money in that space. But uh, um, yeah, we didn't. I, I didn't see many people turning up at the auction, and I thought that was a bit of a concern, to mm. be honest. And that was in a nice area of Elwood. So I, I was down in Goulburn last Friday. Um, I went down to see a play. Actually, uh, my brother-in-law is uh, you know in an amateur theatre down in Goulburn. It's very good. Um, and they had uh, the Hound of the Baskervilles on, so I went down and uh, watched that. The old nice plug, Colgo. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Leader Theatre. Get your tickets. Uh, no. Um, so it was really good. But we're coming back, and um, you get off the motorway, uh, and then you come down Bexley Road um, and through Canterbury, uh, heading towards um, uh, New Canterbury Road. There is on the way in, and um, it was the first time I got a little bit unnerved. I, I think I've been reasonably sort of comfortable with the level of apartment building in Sydney because. Uh, city's booming. Um, we need more places for people to live. Uh, there is limited uh, land space available, so building up is kind of the only option. And it all kind of has made sense to me. But coming down through that road, getting off the motorway, 
uh, and you're going through Canterbury, and there's not it's not like there's lots of shops there. It's not like there's lots and lots of great reasons to live there, but there are just apartments everywhere down that mm-hmm. road. And it's the first time I kind of looked around and said, this looks like a little bit too much. And, you know, we talk about oversupply, and lots of economists um, are forecasting falls in the prices of uh, apartments. You know, plenty are st- saying it'll be flat, but plenty are, are also saying they, they foresee a few f- percentage points at least coming off um, the prices of apartments. And when I looked at that, I was kind of like, well, this is a little bit – I think I can see this happening now. They're, they're very visual. Obviously, you can see them on the skyline, though. But you've got to remember, the, Sydney and Melbourne, you've got hundreds of thousands of people who are moving into these cities uh, over a couple of year period. Now, you've got record low interest rates as well. So you put those two things together, there's going to be a natural underlying demand for, uh, for housing. Now, I admit there's heaps. Like, I live in Waterloo in Sydney. You know, anyone who's gone to the airport, you've probably gone down Waterloo, down Burke Street, uh, and you would have seen this the crazy amount of apartments going on. Everything's been sold. Everything. And the money that's going into them, I, can, I walk past these places every day, and I see the people who are driving around in Maseratis, no less, uh, Mercedes-Benz, all high-end cars, and these things have all been sold already. So uh, I look and I go... On one hand, yes, it is really concerning to see how many uh, apartments we're seeing, but at the same time, there's not many palatable th- reasons for me to go and say, like, well, that's a great place to go and live in those particular areas that are going up now, but yet they've all sold. Mm. I've, um, I've moved to the country, and uh, I think I it's think very fitting. It's a country type of person. Well, it's just so I'm already thinking about I've already bought a, a leaf blower. You know, for no other reason than it just looks good. You need and, a blower. Uh, yeah. I think the next thing, which I think you know, it was is everyone's aspiration is to have a, a, a ride on a lawnmower. You know, you've made it when you've got a lawnmower. <laughs> yeah. I, I can I can picture you, uh, you know, maybe with a pipe, a glass of cider, a tweed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, tweed a Cooperon sounds good for Weston. Yeah. Now look. Um, you mentioned uh, the airport, uh, Dave, a mascot out there. Uh, Sydney Airport was one of the companies uh, to report this week. And uh, one of my favourite little things always to look at is how much those guys made off their parking and transport fees. <laughs> so 21 million, um, 21 million passengers through the airport in the first six months of the year. Congratulations. Well done on the growth, uh, Sydney Airport. And congratulations also for managing to ring about $3.70 out of every single passenger that came through <laughs> for parking and transport. 77 million bucks in six months. Uh, give the, give those guys a round of applause. Take, take advantage of it, Paul. Get a, go out and, um, go and buy the equity. Um, you can buy the debt, but, uh, you know, these guys are pretty, in, in a, in a really good space. And, uh, you know, you, if you look at the international traffic numbers that these, these guys are generating, they've obviously, the fact that they've raised their distribution guidance is saying to the world, you know, we think that we're going to see continued international passenger growth. And, and I think, you know, if we get a number of, say, 5% growth going forward, the stocks are screaming by, um, yeah. in my opinion. The yeah. only thing that, you know, if you if you want to be concerned, if you do see a, a, a rampant sell-off in the fixed income market, that's gonna that's gonna weigh on the stock. There's a natural inverse correlation between the equity and and, and, and you know Australian bond yields and, and U.S. Treasuries. So that would be a concern if you did see a general sell-off going forward. But you know, I think the fact that they've um you know raised their distribution guidance is is a is a pretty clear show about their future cash flows and and, and how the business is tracking and international passenger numbers, as it is with with um you know a number of the other stocks we've been seeing you know who've raised their yeah, dividends, and, and that's been a, a real clear show, show that they're, they're feeling pretty good about themselves. Think of someone like a Fortescue Metals. You know, they're obviously taking themselves away from investing in themselves and, and 
you know looking at the um you know uh, the income that you can you can get from these companies so I think it's a really clear thing for someone like Sydney Airport. So I think I'd be a, I'd be a happy buyer of that over the long term. Yeah, absolutely. Look, and, and a lot of capacity uh, as well coming on. Sure, they're going to have some competition down the track, um, but it looks like it's uh, several years away yet. Um, with the Badgeries Badgeries uh, Creek development, Sydney's second airport. Um, but they it also um, looks like you know they're adding these new routes um, to help them with the demand from Asia, uh, you know, and with the Australian dollar being at eighty cents and not looking like it's going to get much higher than that. Well, um, from what I can see, um, uh, you know, Australia's pretty reasonable place to come and uh, to visit. You know, it's beautiful, it's clean. And I think um, above, got kangaroos. All, above all, um, it's got an amazing food court. Cool. The the, um, the the airport. Yeah, yeah so I know. Yeah, well, I thought, thought you'd go straight to the lounge, Wes. You, the man of your stature. No, oh, okay, through the yeah, the feature was good there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it does. Look, they've invested. I think you know they've invested tens of millions. I think the capex program four hundred million dollars um, of investment rolled out at Sydney Airport um, the last couple of years, and they were saying that they've got another two hundred and fifty million to go. Um, so look. My view on this is, you know, they're in a monopoly position, obviously. And as you say, uh, Chris, um, you know, uh, the, the prospects look good for them. Uh, and it looks to be, you know, pretty interesting company. Still a bloody terrible airport, though. Um, <laughs> I, and so, you know, I, uh, it really gets me down the thought of them uh, having to go through there at any time. At least you've got a train line going there from the city, though. You don't have that in Melbourne, and that's a pain. That, yeah, it's, it, it is the most – I once got stuck. Uh, got, so I left – I had a 5 o'clock flight from Melbourne on a Friday, and I tried to – I took the 5 o'clock because I thought, whatever you do, don't take the 6 o'clock because you'll never get out and you'll get caught in the traffic. Rookie error from you there. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> like 2 o'clock like – we had to drive like almost to bloody um, Albury, Wodonga to get – um, back around to the airport, <laughs> we got off the motorway because it was a car park. Yeah, it's a car park. Um, uh, so I just do not understand why. A, can they? Is there a spa- space where they can move the airport closer? Um, probably not very practical. But can they just build a tunnel or something and get a high speed train uh, going to it? Is, is, you know, I don't live in Melbourne. Do people are people just fuming about this down there? I think people have um, have put up with it. The, the, the taxi drivers usually. Um, are the ones because there's just too much there's too much traffic going to the airport now you know and if you and if you're clever you just you just make sure you co you, you correlate your times of when you land and when you don't land around busy busy periods and you can get away with it otherwise it yeah it's a bit of a nightmare to be honest but we get we're sort of used to it now I suppose it's just sort of one of those things in life that you you have to endure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to roll out one of my most hated phrases, it is what it is. Um, the other thing that was interesting um, from uh, reporting season, Telstra, um, I, I think it was what was interesting to me about that was they announced they were cutting the dividend by 30% because they wanted to um, uh, they wanted to invest in the future. Yeah. And the stock got smoked 10% uh, down on the day, um, climbed back uh, a little bit. But, oh, what, you mean you, you're actually going to invest? Can, can I, my, my, my view on this is, is that if you want income, buy the bonds. <laughs> you know, you've got predictable income streams. The, 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 the actual, you know, Telstra's bonds on the day were, were basically unmoved, where the equity was under pressure because everyone said, oh, we, we, we want income, we don't want growth. Um, and, you know, if you want income, if you want predictable income, 
you know, there's a, there's a place for fixed income and, and corporate corporate credit in the portfolio. Um, you know, equity is always that situation among a lot. You know, a lot from retailers. Oh, we want to go and buy the banks because you're getting a five percent fully frank yield, and they overlook actually investing in in the corporate bond space. And to me, there's you know, if I want income in my in my balance portfolio. You know, I'll have corporate credit in there as opposed to income from the equity markets. Yeah, it's a silly scenario that you've got these bond proxies where people go and and, and use equities basically as a bond, uh, and then expect to not have any uh, no collateral damage when uh, no, they go and make an announcement which is unexpected, like Telstra did, um, and see so the capital going erode any uh, advantage you have over the bonds in terms of the yield. Um, no, good on Telstra. You know, that we need, we're living in a 21st century here. We need to go and have you know, facilities and infrastructure that's going to go and allow this economy to function. So, um, look, I've got no qualms in looking to go and, and take a step back from uh, from being that dividend payer to uh, to more of a growth stocker in the years ahead. And I think uh, in the long run, a lot of investors will probably appreciate it as well. Well, I think the other thing is that that reveals a little bit about the the premium that's attached to these uh, stocks um, that have very strong payout ratios. So, and in, with Telstra, it looks like around 10% connected to the 30% of the dividend. Mm. Um, so what's the premium that it's carrying for the other 70%? Uh, I mean, sure, look, you can understand why, you know, um, the, the, there's uh, people who want to have the income, etc. But as you say, Chris, um, there are other ways to get that, right? Yeah, I mean, 100%. Yeah, I think... Yeah, I mean, so many people, uh, both institutional and retail, have been bought, be, had been going. You know, there's 100 percent of cash going back to shareholders. Fantastic. Um, you know, those times have changed, and I think people people liquidated because they they maybe saw other opportunities. Uh, I, you know, I'm not going to say I, I, I've got more better foresight than anyone else, but you know, I think that the the idea that they were going to lower the payout ratio was actually something that quite a few people had been predicting. Obviously, the fact that the equity was down 10 percent on the day suggests that it was. Obviously not commonplace, but there was certainly some vulnerabilities kicking into that dividend, and you know, and I think, I think personally, it's, it's probably quite getting to a point where it's going to be a good buy. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's the, the, the payout ratios are, are certainly one of the big thematics we've seen uh, over what has been a fairly average earnings season so far. Um, you know, I think there's been a lot of thematics we've been taking out. How much does the Aussie dollar weigh? You know how are these companies' balance sheets uh, prepared for for the future. What are they saying about the economy? Um, but I think the wash up, uh, Paul and Dave, is that we are at a situation where, you know, you see the ASX 200 has been caught in this trap of 5800 to 5675 for for 14 weeks. I mean, as a as a trader, this is fantastic. I mean, everyone loves trends, and you know, you want to see something that's more akin to the S and P, which is you know pushing all time highs. But, you know, for someone, you've got to trade the conditions. You've got to trade the range. And, and right now it's just fade the market, fade the SPY futures, whatever you want to trade. Above 5,800, buy, looking to buy into above 5,675. It's been a very, very predictable trade. It's, it's, it's almost been too easy. The question is, is I think once it breaks, it's going to be a very meaningful break indeed. And if you look at the index at the moment, you know, we're trading just under 16 times as a multiple, forward multiple. Um, people just don't want to pay much more than 16 times at the moment. Has this earnings season given us a belief that we're going to see the E side of the equation being ratcheted ratchet up and obviously push the PE down? That hasn't happened, and the market just feels very comfortable. So is it that what we're asking, is the earnings season going to be the thing breaking us out of the range? Clearly not. It's going to have to come from overseas leads. It's going to have to come from you know, the S&P, either breaking to new all-time highs 
or we're going to have to see you know the S&P really breaking down perhaps because of the debt ceiling causing implied volatility to increase. Yes, how the US economy performs next year, I completely agree with the offshore factors that will go and drive it. I think people are looking for, you know, where's the next growth driver for our stock market going to be at the moment? Um, there's very few catalysts. The other thing that we need to go and keep aware of is, the, is what happens in China as well after the end of uh, their elections later this year. Uh, elections, I say that tongue in cheek, of course, um, as to uh, what the happens with their economy and what and what and what uh, and what path they go and choose with the economy and what priorities they'll make, because um, obviously a lot of the support that's coming to the market recently has been in the material sector. You've got to ask yourself uh, with the Party Congress: Is are we setting up ourselves for one of the longest? And most prolonged by the rumor, sell the facts kind of things. I mean, they, they are massaging yeah. the economy so that the, the handover, potential handover, is you know volatility is low, assets are rising, the equity market there is doing very nicely. Okay, we've just seen the reporting season in China and 22% aggregate EPS growth is fantastic. But you know, all these markets is it's it's bizarre, it's uncanny <laughs> that the equity markets at the highest levels for ages. Uh, asset prices, you know, um, in commodities are all rallying into the into the situation. Once, once we've had the handover, do we get the sell the fact? To, you know, does all of this support come out of the market? And I think we 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 need to really keep an eye on that because there could be some big, big vulnerabilities in all of these markets after that. We are a little pressed for time. I can't believe that we're here already. Um, I want to get to a couple of things. The Wallabies. Uh, Dave, do you want to start? Where do we start? So, um, <laughs> Broken man. Yeah. First and foremost, the <laughs> Wallabies' performance last weekend was reminiscent of every single Waratahs game that I went and watched live in person uh, during the, uh, the Super Rugby season. Um, just basic skills, completely lacking. Defence was absolutely appalling. Um, how he can have a 15-man-a-side game and get overlapped in the first 20 minutes of the game is just absolutely unacceptable. And that's why there was such an outcry from the Australian public. Is just There's so much pride in the, uh, the Wallabies jersey, and, and so many Australians love the team. And to see what's going on at the moment, uh, everyone's deeply dissatisfied. Um, I was watching the game at a, a local pub, the Bat and Ball, and a um, big crowd uh, rocked up there. And it was just so... I'm trying to go explain this. It was one of those moments where... The loudest cheer of the entire night was when the Wallabies scored their first try. And it wasn't because the people in the pub were celebrating. It was almost in a mocking situation where it was like, oh, my God, we've actually managed to go and score a try. This must be a fluke. And as a Wallabies fan, as a Wallabies fan for years, it was, you know, I sat there and, like, you know, laughed at it. But to me, it's one of those hurtful things. And, no, I know the players are probably trying their absolute uh, guts out to go and do it. But whatever's happening in the background is just simply not working at the moment. Uh, I went to the game. Um, my dad is over from Dublin at the moment, actually, and um, so I brought him to the game. I said I'd give him some uh, an authentic Australian experience. Go well, you need to get one. Yeah, go and go and meet some uh, good mates at the KB. Uh, you know, it's a train down near Central. Oh, sorry, a pub down near Central Station there. Um, and then head out to ANZ Stadium and watch the Wallabies get destroyed by the All Blacks. So it doesn't get much more. Uh, you know, that's what um, I've been doing in Sydney for years. Uh, I wrote a what was a pretty controversial column at the time um, earlier this year, saying that rugby, rugby union was a lot in a lot of trouble in this country, based on the participation numbers that you see in the Roy Morgan numbers, like uh, participation rates down something like um, two thirds uh, over the last ten, fifteen years. Um, 
when we were at, at the game, at halftime, there was people walking around like they'd seen ghosts, ashen faces. Uh, people were genuinely in shock. Um, and I think there's this dawning, re- like, and I don't care, no excuses that came back in the second half. Uh, you know, uh, there was a couple of, the, the All Blacks capitalized on a couple of mistakes in the first half. Uh, there's no excuses. They were terrible. They were terrible, and they were destroyed by a team that has really lifted the standard of rugby. But you had a group that just toured down there, uh, made up of handpicked players from three different teams that don't always play together, and they managed to hold them to a draw, drawn series. So I'm sorry, but you know it's not like the Wallabies are in this, or, or the All Blacks are in this entire stratosphere of their own. They can be beaten. Ireland beat them uh, last year. Earlier this year. In Chicago. In Chicago. Well, hang on, hang on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's talk about the Lions here, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that was a, yeah, I mean, you did, absolutely. But, like, I mean, I think this weekend, you know, is it, is it Dunedin? Yes. Um, you know, you can't see that being a particularly close game. Um, I think you've got 25 points, um, you know, for New Zealand head start there. The big one, I think, will be against the, against the South Africans because... Yeah, the Australians have promise. You've got some cracking players. You have to say with some great players. But, you know, the, the, the South Africans played quite well against Argentina the other day. Fine, they were at home um, and they had a great territory and they were obviously the better team. Um, but I think that's good. I think you'll lose you know, Australia. I say we. I've been here 12 years now as well. Um, I think we'll lose 25 points or so against the Kiwis. In, in, mm. in And then I think the big game against South Africa will be... Be the real test, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm worried about the Pumas, to be honest. No, I, <laughs> I, I I would not be surprised if we get uh, no dusted by the uh, the box. Uh, this is the standard at the moment is just you no know, Argentina are not a pushover side, and as 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 I saw when uh, they went and watched them against the Waratahs, um, just they absolutely outplays their skills are better than us, and the Waratahs, you know, they make up you know not not half of the Wallaby squad, but quite a lot large chunk of it. So. If that's any indication to go by, then no, deeply worrying. Going back to um to last weekend's Bledisloe test, it's clear that the All Blacks they went and made wholesale changes and they took their foot off the gas. I I deeply fear that what will happen if they're going to say we're going to go full throttle and see what we can do the whole time, the whole game. If that happens, yeah, it's like I don't want to contemplate you know what would happen and what the fallout would be. But uh, I think that then you'll start hearing like a lot of chatter about you know there's a need for heads to roll or something, something the structure of the uh, of, of how the actual administration is run that needs to go. Well, uh, absolutely. So we have this issue with Super Rugby at the moment, uh, the, um, with the force basically looking like they're out. Um, I thought poor decision. Um, but um, I, th- I think that'll be a bad outcome, very sad for, for um, the rugby um, community in Perth. Um, but um, so there's that. Um, Bill Pulver is going from the ARU. Uh, who's going to come in and run that? Who has a plan that is going to be um, effective and workable? Um, because there, there is certainly a lot of very strong views within the rugby community about what needs to happen. Yeah, Andrew so, Forrest involved. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, to be honest, maybe I think I think it'd be great to have him involved, uh, certainly with the force. Yeah, someone um, with some passion involved in the game is necessity at this point in time, and business now, so we're also going to help. But let's not discount the fact. You now, Paul, I'm glad you went out to the game last weekend because it was the lowest ever Bledisloe test at that stadium. 
That's was it, it that, really? That that says it all. And I mean, everyone's you, playing archery, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah ballroom dancing. Yeah. Just, it just it just speaks volumes about uh, you know how far the uh, the game has fallen in the, uh, in the eyes of many Australians that they can't even bother go out and see what used to be the absolute premier event when it came to world rugby. Mm. I will say one thing uh, before we move on to one other quick thing quickly. Um, uh, everybody would love to see the Wallabies um, make a really good. Performance put in like, and it would be ex- extraordinary turnaround if they really took it to the All Blacks. Mm. Uh, and I think everybody really does want to see deep down. I mean, it's just devastating to see this standard of play um, and disappointing. But everybody would really love to see that um, all coming um, back to life and uh, uh, style of play and um, a, a winning strategy that uh, everybody can get behind. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, speaking of. Uh, style of play and winning strategies that everybody can get behind. Uh, it's Sunday, 11 o'clock on main event. Uh, $60 if you're willing to part with it. Or perhaps you can go and join a whole bunch of Irish people down at the pub. Uh, <laughs> Floyd May- May- Mayweather and uh, Conor McGregor fighting on uh, Sunday morning. Westy, what's going to happen? Um, I know there'll be a few McGregor fans out there, but um, yeah, look, he's going to get He's going to get owned. He's going to get absolutely owned. He's going to get shown a lesson. I know fine Mayweather's 40 years old. He's coming back from two years in retirement. But, uh, you know, he's going, to, he's going to be in absolutely great shape. The guy's going to be... Yeah, he's the best defensive boxer in the world. The idea that McGregor's going to have this miracle punch, I think, is, is such a low probability. So many good, hard hitters have fought him over the years, and they've managed... Yeah, you know, he's been hit, and he's never gone down. Not properly. He's never lost a fight in that regard. And... I think it's going to go, my, my, my belief uh, is it's going to go to seven rounds and I think uh, McGregor's corner will stop the fight. Dave? I think there's more chance McGregor will get disqualified than win. Uh, kicking, biting. Well, when, you, when you're in a sport and where you're naturally uh, used to going, having uh, reflex actions uh, when you're under duress, um, I think it's definitely a possibility. A dollar thirty. I think, you know, just borrow money from the bank as much as you can probably get on. You're gonna make a you're gonna make a thirty percent return. It's 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 free money. I can see I can see a Brexit scenario happening. Here. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Um, look, uh, yeah, I think um, pretty interesting. I, I will say one thing. Um, I, I also think Mayweather uh, is just going to stand there, uh, rope a dope, um, see him see McGregor get exhausted, and then. Um, uh, potentially knock him out. Um, but, um, or, or McGregor's uh, side might call the fight, we'll see. Um, but I do know what those Dublin kids are like. Yeah. Uh, and believe me, you do not want to be, uh, certainly don't want to be in a dark alley with them and I would not like to be in a boxing ring um, up against him. Um, and he's, you know, very, he's a great sportsman. Um, I think this is going to be really interesting he's, for boxing. It's, it's obviously elevator UFC, but I think it's got people in, interested back in boxing he's again. Got, it's grown the category, but he's, look, he, he has to come. There's only one thing he can do. He has to come out. McGregor has to come out and just be uber, 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 uber aggressive. He can't let Mayweather, you know, hold back and dictate play and there can't be another rerun of the Pacquiao fight. It has to, he has to come in and he has to just go hammer and tong. First two rounds. Whack him with everything he's got, and just really hope he gets through, uh, and he lands, and he gets that miracle punch, and it's the only way he can do it, in my opinion. Not that I'm a, a boxing, um, a boxer myself, but I think there's only he, ha- he it's not going to be a boring fight. He's going to come out, and he's going to go, he's going to go guns in, I reckon. You've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia, as always on the show. David Scott, fantastic, and uh, yeah, Wes, you could have a chat, mate. 
And uh, our, our guest, uh, Chris Weston, uh, Head of Research at IG Markets. Chris, great having you back on the show. Pleasure. Thanks, guys. Next time uh, we do it, maybe we'll do it on location on your, um, on your, in your, your property in the country and we can try, to, try out the ride-on mower. Okay, you can, <laughs> you can find us on iTunes where you can rate us and leave a review. We're on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. I'm Paul Colgan. The show is produced by Rick Salter. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. podcast was delivered by Australia Post. If you've ever received a branded package, you'll know it's a small detail that makes a big first impression. Now with Australia Post, you can design your own personalised packaging. For more info, go to auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.